me please to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and welcome to week 3 of a journey that has us walking through this book of Colossians that highlights and shows us very clearly the supremacy of Christ, that He is the supreme one, as well as the sufficiency of Christ, that we can trust Him in the midst of all things. Um, everything that we're going through, we can trust Christ. And just remember, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul um, around A.D. Uh, 61-ish is what we're, we're thinking, why he was in prison um, in Rome. So this is a prison letter um, written to a church. So in the midst of being in prison, he wasn't just thinking about himself. He wasn't just writing um, song blues songs about how difficult life is for himself. He was thinking about the church, and he was writing um, to the church. And as we heard in week one, Paul didn't want anything to get in the way of the the believers at Colossus seeing Christ. And in the same way, he doesn't want us to miss who Christ is, that we have to see Christ. May nothing prevent us, may nothing keep us from seeing Christ. And today we're going to look at one of the most beautiful pictures of Christ in all of the Bible. Yet the one thing I was thinking about this week and just really been impressed upon my heart is that you and I will never, never love Christ the way we're supposed to until he becomes more than just stories to us. So if Christ is just stories to us, if he's just this story and that story, there, there are times when I'm reading through the gospel narrative that I just have to stop and I have to say, no, you're reading it all wrong. You, you're reading it as if you know what's going to happen because you do, but you need to step back and realize the picture of the reality of what you're reading. These aren't just good moral stories with moral lessons. These are stories about the God-man and how it impacts our lives. So the picture is Christ must become personal to every one of us. So beyond stories, beyond just knowledge of him, we must have a personal experience and a personal knowledge. I, I think of the words of J.C. Ryle, who, who write, writes this. He says, you'll never grow as a Christian until you develop a personal intimacy with the Lord Jesus. And he goes on to explain it, until you deal with him as you would a best friend, until you turn to him first in every need, Talk to him about all your difficulties. Spread before him all your sorrows. Allow him to share in all your joys. Do all things as in his sight to go through every day leaning on him. That's the kind of relationship Christ wants with us. He doesn't want to be our last resort. He wants us to come to him first and foremost to lean upon him. And in order for us to develop that intimacy and that trust for him, we have to come to know him. I think of a story in Mark 4 that most of us are familiar with. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. A raging storm had come upon them, and the disciples are now fearing for their lives. And for some reason, unbeknownst to us, Jesus thought that would be a really good time for him to take a nap. So in the midst of all this going on, the raging storm, Jesus said, now's a good time for me to catch up on my sleep. Well, of course, the disciples wake Jesus up and they begin to accuse him, saying, don't you care that we're all about to die? And of course, I could just see Jesus standing up, wiping a little bit of sleep out of his eyes, and then with just a word, bringing complete and total peace to everything. The storm is gone. The raging waves are gone Everything that had been to them a fear was now a complete and total hush. And the book of uh, chapter of Mark, Mark 4 ends by the disciples saying, Who is this man 
that even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man? Just think about this. Who is Jesus? Who is he? On your answer to that question hangs all of the issues of life and death, of good and evil, of truth and falsehood, even heaven and, and hell. Let me give you a scenario. Just think of yourself. Think about, let's just say you are in your home tonight, and you are gathered, um, in your home are gathered several individuals from a variety of different religious backgrounds. So sitting around your table tonight um, is a, a Mormon, a, a Muslim, a Jehovah Witness, a, a Jew, and yourself. And of course, you're sitting around and you're enjoying some small talk, and then someone eventually acknowledges the elephant in the room, which is belief concerning Jesus. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And you're awaiting the response. So the Mormon is the first to speak up, and the Mormon says, let me tell you who Jesus is or who he was. He was the firstborn a child of Elohim. He was the product of a sexual relationship with God and Mary. The good news is that if we work hard enough in this life, we too can become um, sons of God in the same sense that Jesus is. And then the Mormon says, has anyone seen my bicycle? Anybody at all? So that's one picture. Then the Muslim, um, then he protests and goes, no, 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 not even close. Jesus is just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like Isaiah. He was a prophet of God, but not God himself. In fact, he wasn't even the most important of the prophets. Muhammad, who lived 500 years after him, was God's greatest prophet. And then the Muslim says, besides, Jesus really didn't die on the cross, as Christians believe, but was rescued from the cross by Allah and brought to heaven, and another person died in his place. So the Jehovah Witness now can no longer hold his peace, and he says, you're both wrong. Prior to his coming to the earth, Jesus was Michael, the archangel. Um, he's only a creature, the first product of Jehovah, um, God's creative work. And when he was born of the Virgin Mary, um, he lost his spiritual angelic nature, and he became holy and exclusively a man. And then he would say, Jesus isn't God. And then Jehovah Witness would say, would you like to read my Watchtower pamphlet and try to give us one of those? Then the Jew would speak up and he would say, although he was a great teacher of morality to some, Jesus was nothing more than a false prophet and a false Messiah. And then the Jew would say, and Jesus has become an idol to you Christians or to Christianity. In fact, Jesus did not meet the requirements of the Messiah as laid out by our law, is what the Jew would, would say. So think about this conversation, and now all eyes turn to you as they await your entrance into this conversation. Who is Jesus? In that moment, what are you going to say? What would you say about Jesus? And listen, I don't know what you would say, but here's what. I know what the Apostle Paul would say. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're about to read together what the Apostle Paul would say in this conversation. Here's what he would say um, concerning the question, who is Jesus? Beginning at verse 15 all the way to verse 20, listen to Paul's answer. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is indeed the image of the invisible God. And today, may nothing keep us from seeing Christ for who he is. Lord, help us today to see Jesus for who he is and help us in a fresh and a new way to stand in awe of him, not just knowing stuff, but standing awe of the relationship that we are able to have with him, that we can know him now. Lord, just, just leave us in awe of you. In your name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. So just think about this. No paragraph in the New Testament contains a more concentrated doctrine of Jesus than, than this one. Every, every single statement made in this paragraph is absolutely exclusive, meaning every word is true of, as far as humanly speaking, of Jesus and Jesus alone. No one else is the image of the invisible God. No one else is the firstborn over all creation. No one else can be creator of all things in heaven and on earth. No one else is before all things. No one else is holding all things together. No one else is the head of the church. Or no one else has the fullness of God dwelling in them. These are all exclusive statements. There's no one like Jesus, and because he is who he is, according to Paul, he deserves the preeminence. Or to put it in another, another way for us, he deserves first place. He deserves first place in our lives. Therefore, we don't just tip the cap to Jesus and go, hey, you're a mighty fine fellow. No, we bow the knee to him, and we worship him, and we say, worthy is the lamb. Worthy are you, O God. So this morning, we come to this amazing picture of Christ. And what I want to do in our time together is I want us to unpack, according to the Apostle Paul, um, and I could go way deeper than this and have a whole lot more, but I want to unpack four unique relationships that Jesus shows us, or that Jesus um, reveals to us, um, that, that Paul himself reveals to us during um, this amazing paragraph. So the first is this, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to God. So Jesus is supreme in his relationship with God. We think about verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 17, he's before all things. Verse 19, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so what we know and what Paul tells us is that God by his very nature is invisible. He's the invisible God. God is spirit. Human eye cannot see him. Yet, Jesus enables finite man to see the infinite God. Jesus becomes to us the revealing one. Think about this. When we read the Word of God, the Word of God tells us that nature reveals to us the existence of God. So by nature, we know that God exists, for God made it. But 
in a greater way, Jesus doesn't just reveal to us the existence of God. Jesus reveals to us the essence of God. He's the essence of, of God. Jesus is the shining forth of all of God's glory. In Jesus, we see what God is like. So if we want to know the moral beauty of God the Father, we look to God the Son. We look to Jesus. Or as we said earlier this year in our I Am series, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. If we, if we want to see the glory of God, we look to Jesus. We behold God's glory in the face of Christ. Jesus is the exact character, the exact representation of God. To see Christ is to see the, the Father. I tell you, it saddens me when we live in a day and age where when people hear the word that God is their Father, so many people immediately have um, their mouth drops and they can't get past that one statement because of their relationship with their earthly Father. So how do you, what do you do with a person who is just so stunned by hearing God as a father and the only thing they know about a father is abandonment and, and hatefulness? And how do, you, how do you get them past that? And what, you, what you've got to do is get their eyes on Jesus. For Jesus shows them the love of the father. Jesus shows them how God responds and acts in every situation, in every way. Someone says, said it this way, Jesus relates to God the way that rays of sunlight relate to the sun. There is no time that the sun exists without the beams of radiance. The two cannot be separated, for the rays of the sun are an extension of the sun. We see the sun by means of seeing the rays. In a similar yet much greater way, we see God the Father by beholding the sun. He is the image of the invisible God. Just think about this. If God were a man, if God were a man, what would we expect him to be like? So if God were a man, what would we expect him to be like? Would we not expect him to be sinless? And Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was in all points tempted yet without sin. Would we not expect him to be the greatest um, speaker ever? And yet all the way through the gospel, we, we hear over and over again, no one has ever spoken like this man. No one has ever spoken like him. If God were a man, would we not expect him to influence people? I think of what we read this week in Acts 4 where Peter and John spoke and they said they took notice that they had been with Jesus. Meaning they took notice that these men had been influenced by Jesus. If God were a man, would we not also expect him to perform miracles? Think about the Gospels. Jesus had authority over nature, over diseases, over demons, over death, and over our salvation. Has authority over that. If God were a man, we would expect him to know the future. Think about Matthew um, 16 and over and over again, Jesus predicting that he would die and raise, be raised from the dead. If God were a man, we would expect him to show us what God is like. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus is the revealing one. He reveals God to us. But also, if we look at this scripture, especially verse 15, Jesus is the ranking one because the Bible says he's the firstborn over all creation. But here's the question. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation? And the word firstborn in the Bible can mean two things in Hebrew. It can either mean the first one to be born or it can mean a position of inheritance. Think about this. Isaac was called Abraham's firstborn son, even though Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. But Isaac was the one who got the position, and Isaac was the one who got the promises. 
Same thing with Jacob and Esau. So Jesus is the firstborn over creation, not in the sense that he is part of creation, but in the sense, get this, that he is over creation. He is over creation. He is over it all. And it's, it's crazy that this verse is the verse that Jehovah Witnesses use. If Jehovah Witnesses have ever knocked on your door and you had a conversation, this is the verse that they will use as proof that Jesus is not God. This shows us how you can just take one little, um, one little uh, sentence, one, one little um, just, just picture and pull it out in order to try to prove something. So they say, if Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that shows us that he is not God, that he is a created being. And unfortunately, somehow in the midst of this, they, they miss the point. They miss the point of the paragraph. They miss the point of what Paul is trying to say. Here's the point, brothers and sisters, of all, of all people born into this world, Jesus is the greatest, for he is the God-man. He perfectly unites God with us. He perfectly unites God with us. Therefore, we are able to say, Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is supreme in his relationship with God. The second truth is Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the visible world. He's supreme in his relationship to the visible world. So verse 16 and 17 says, By him all things were created. And it says, the visible, so we have that through him and for him. So everything that we see that has been created has been made through him and it has been made for him. And then, then think of this. I just said that Jehovah Witnesses use that verse um, to verse 15 to say Jesus was created, but if, I always take them to the very next verse. So I always say, well, if that's true, then look at what it says in verse 16. By him all things were created. So if Jesus was the first created being in a series of other created beings, then how did Jesus create himself? Because verse 16 says Jesus created all things. So how did he make himself? How did he do that? If Jesus made all things, and the word all in Greek means pos, it means everything. Nothing can be excluded, even Jesus himself, if that were the, the case. But the point is, it's not the picture. The point is that Jesus is not a part of creation. He's the architect of creation. He's the one that brought it about. And he's not just the architect, he's the artisan. From his holy mind came all that we see. All of this is a representation of the holy mind of Jesus. And think about this. He's the architect, he's the artisan of all creation, but he's also the aim. It is all through him and it is all for him. Everything in creation, including you and me, have been made for God. Therefore, to put that in words that we can understand, none of this is about us. It doesn't revolve around you and me. I love the words of John Piper. He says, do you love the thought that you exist to make God look glorious? Do you love the thought that all creation exists to display the glory of God? Do you love the truth that all of history is designed by God to one day be a completed canvas that displays in the best way possible the greatness and beauty of God? Do you find joy in knowing that it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Him? Do we find joy in that? Did you know that God did not create the world so that He could have us? He created the world so that we could have him. Let me say it again. God did not create the world so that he could have us. He created the world so that we could have him. It's all about him. 
As the creator of all things visible, when Jesus looks at the world he made in every minuscule detail, including every detail of your life and my life, there is nothing that Jesus sees that he cannot say, that's mine. That's mine. Your life is is mine. Everything you have is mine. But not only does Jesus create all things, praise him, he also sustains all things. Look at verse 17. It says, in him... Through him, in him, all things hold together. And I think sometimes we miss what that means. Jesus is not only the agent of creation. He's not only the goal of creation. He is the one that's holding it all together in the middle. Your life, my life, your body right now, the breath that just entered your lungs, the earth staying in orbit, the sun burning at the right temperature, all of these things are happening because God and Christ are telling them to happen. This is Jesus holding your life and my life together. Therefore, no matter what is going on in your life, hear this, it hasn't surprised Jesus. Maybe you've been surprised this week. He hasn't. He's not surprised by the things that enter into your life. He knows them. But I read something this week that I had never read um, relating to this passage. And let me just uh, set it up in this way. How many of you have ever been through, experienced an earthquake? Okay, so a few of us in this room. I've never had that experience. A few of us have. I know our our mission team in Ecuador, maybe you didn't hear this. They experienced some of um, uh, uh, earthquakes, some of the aftershocks of an earthquake when they were in Ecuador, but I, I've, never, I've never had an idea, never experienced what it literally means to have the ground shaking beneath my feet. Now, I, I felt that in other ways. I felt that in, in my life, going through, I, I felt, but, but literally never, never felt that, but the Colossian Christians did. History records that a devastating earthquake hit this area, either get this, either right before or right after Paul sent this letter. So either right before or right after, we don't know exactly when it happened or exactly, we know it's right around the time, either right before or right after Paul sent this letter, an earthquake hit um, the people at Colossus. Therefore, it was the grace of God um, over the, the believers at Colossus who had either been shaken or were about to be shaken for them to hear, Jesus is holding you together. He's holding you together. The reason you're not unraveling is because Jesus is holding you together. The reason you have not been shaken and swallowed up by the earth is because Jesus is holding you together. The reason you have not just all together thrown up your hands and given up is because Jesus is holding your life together. Don't miss the beauty of that. What are we supposed to do with that? And I love the words of Elizabeth Elliot, and I've shared this with you a couple months back, but she says this, think about it like this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was the thickness of one sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of our galaxy is only a speck of dust in the universe. And if they're a person who is holding all of that together... Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? And the the point is, Jesus is holding it all together. And what we do with that power is not going, I could really use you to be my assistant in my life. No, what we do is we say, you are Lord. 
And you are the one who's not only holding this together, you're holding this mess together. There are so many times that I, I say that, brothers and sisters. God, not only are you holding all this together, you're holding this mess right here. And my family, which is sometimes a mess and a hot mess, you're holding us together by the word of your power. Understand, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the visible world. But then third, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the invisible world. Just look at verse 16 again. Let me just unpack this for you. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, here's the word, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So not only did Jesus create everything that we are able to see, he also created everything that is in heaven, everything in invisible. In the middle of verse 16, we see some familiar terms to Paul. He uses the words... Um, Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And what he is speaking of is the angelic order. Every angel, both holy and fallen, was created by Christ. And every angel, both holy and fallen, was created for Christ. Think about when Jesus came into this world. How did the invisible world respond to him? And here's what I love. Because all throughout the Gospels, what you see is the holy angels are worshiping Jesus and the fallen angels are obeying Jesus. Don't miss that. The holy angels are worshiping him and even the fallen, unholy, miserable demons are obeying Christ. Don't miss his authority. Don't miss his power. And here's the problem. Normally, we make two, um, two errors when it comes to spiritual forces. Either we give them way too much attention or we don't give them enough attention. If you've been around that hyper-spiritual person, everything is a spiritual battle. And if this went their way, it's because the angels of God were protecting them. And if this didn't go their way, it's because the, um, the demons were after them. If they get a flat tire on their way to church, it's because the demons of hell were trying to keep them from, from, uh, from church. It has nothing apparently to do with the fact that you ran off the road, um, hit the grass, ran over a nail. I mean, it has nothing to do with your bad driving skills. It has everything to do with the demons that are against you. And granted, I understand that we live in a spiritual world, so I don't want to neglect that in any way. But here's the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is there is an invisible spiritual world that, that must obey Jesus. Must obey him. There's an invisible spiritual world that must obey the one who is supreme over them. Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the invisible world. And then lastly, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the church. He is supreme in his relationship to the church. Look at verse 18. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. And I love what Paul does here because when he uses the word church, he, he's not referring to the little c institution or the individual church. He's not referring to the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way as far as the individual church. Although, let me just say this, Jesus should be and he better be the head of First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. I'm not the head of First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, and bless God, you're not the head of First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. Jesus is. And he's building his church here. But what Paul is talking about is he's talking about the one kingdom that will exist forever. Jesus is the head of the unstoppable, unmovable, always pressing forward, big C church, which is his people of, from all tribes, all tongue, all nation, all people, everywhere church, all throughout 
time. And think about this today, brothers and sisters. We can either be about an institution, let's just say the first Baptist Church of Ocean Way that has a lifespan, that has a beginning and probably will have an end, or we can be about the kingdom that will always be. Meaning that we can either make it our aim to build up the kingdom of God, whatever that looks like for us, or we can put our focus on building the first Baptist Church of Ocean Way as if it was the hope of the world. I heard a local pastor a couple weeks ago. I don't know all the context of what he was saying, but he basically said this. We've, you really need to come to our church because the local church is the hope of the world. And I just, just let that kind of sink into your mind. Some of you might think, well, yeah, we, we have Christ in us, but just follow with me here. Are we the hope of the world? If the local church is the hope of the world, let me just tell you that we're doing it wrong. Because when we go to India, guess what we're not doing? We're not telling those people, guys, y'all really need to get a hold of what's going on at First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. Y'all really need to get a hold of what we are doing. Y'all are just absolutely doing it all wrong because y'all need to be patterning it after us. No, we don't do that. Why? Because we're not the hope of the world. What we do is we say, Jesus, look to Jesus. He is the one who is the hope of the world. Look to him. Worship him. Sing to him. Desire him above all things. And if we don't do that, let me tell you, we're doing it wrong. If we don't do that, we're doing it wrong. And in fact, I think about this. Last Thursday was one year that we've had Malachi, and something amazing happened that morning. Um, we we're on our way to school, and we pray every morning in the car on the way to school. And I got done praying on Thursday, and he said, Dad, you did it wrong. And I was like, well, tell me what I'm supposed to do. So I pulled over, um, and he said, okay, put your hands together. I put my hands together. He said, close your eyes. I closed my eyes, and he said, Dad, say, Jesus, I love you. And I said, Jesus, I love you. And he said, amen. And I said, amen. And he said, now me do it. And he said, Jesus, I love you too. Amen. And that might not mean like much to you, but let me just tell you, a year ago from last Thursday, that little boy had never heard the name of Jesus. Had never heard the name of, of Jesus. And now granted, when we pass by this church every day, he goes, that's my church. That's my, and I love the fact that, that but listen, we're not pointing him to First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, we're pointing him to Jesus. We're pointing him to Jesus over and over and over again. Think about this. Don't miss this. There, there's so many things. When I, when I think about this, I, I think we're able to rejoice only because Jesus is the head of the church and only because Jesus is the, the hope of the world. When I think about the ebbs and flows of our church, the First Baptist Ocean Way, when I think about some churches in our culture that have completely adopted the culture of the world, and I'm not trying to call names and not trying to do all that, but it would be easy to get discouraged if not for the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. And because Jesus is the head of the church, not only will the gates of hell not prevail, because Jesus is the head of the church, we're able to shake the very gates of hell. This is the picture of it. So, And Paul doesn't just stop there. Now Paul goes on and says this, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. So Jesus is the founder of the church, according to Paul, by virtue of him rising from the dead so that he might have first place in everything. So listen to what Paul says. He says he's the firstborn from the dead. So what Paul is not saying is that Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead. We know that is not true. Jesus was not the first person to rise from the dead. But get this. Jesus was the first person who rose from the dead and stayed that way. He's the first person who rose from the dead with a glorified body. Therefore, that becomes great news for us because it means if Jesus was the first to rise with a glorified body, it means there will be others. There will be others, brothers and sisters, me and you. And our, our, our picture of this, we will put on um, immortality. And we will have a glorified body. And we look forward to that day. And according to this, all of this makes Jesus preeminent. There's no one like him. There's no, more, no one more glorious than him. No one more beautiful than him. No one more powerful than him. He is preeminent in everything. Therefore, he must have first place in our worship. We are all worshipers. The problem is we don't always worship him. And worship doesn't just take place on Sunday morning. It's our life. Are we worshiping Him with our life? Are we standing in awe of Him every day? He must have first place in our devotions. Get this. Jesus is not only first place when you have prosperity. He is also first place when you have pain. He is first place in our prosperity, and He is also first place in our pain. And we praise Him in our prosperity, and we praise Him in our pain. For we say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we want Him to have first place in this church. Think about this. Jesus is the, he's the point of our preaching. I'm not up here trying to tell you what I think. I'm not up here trying to give you my opinion. I don't, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. The only thing that matters is what God says. It's the only thing that matters, what he says. So therefore, we want that. Is he the goal of our preaching? Is he the goal of our plans? Is he the goal of our prayers? He better be, for he will be preeminent, and he must be preeminent. And when I think about these relationships of Christ, it leads me to ask in this moment, and I pray that you ask the same question, what is my relationship with Christ? Is he or am I currently superseding him as Lord? Did you know that we live in a world that there are, we have so many things that are just waiting to take Jesus' place as Lord? First of all, ourselves. But then so many other things that are just gladly, will gladly serve as our Lord if we let them. But here's the reality. None of them, none of them, there's only one who is, there's only one Savior of sinners in the world, and his name is Jesus. None of those will save us. So are we... Are we putting something else on the throne of our hearts? Or is he the Lord? Is he the one that we are trusting in? Is he the one that we are bowing our knee to? Not just 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but now. Is he reigning on the throne of our hearts? Let me end this morning by sharing something that I first heard a long time ago, but it is so relevant even today. And it expresses, it expresses the all-encompassing view of Christ. And just 
get this, and if anybody wants to copy this later, I'll give you one. Just listen to this. To the artist, he is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he is the bright and morning star. To the baker, he is the living bread. To the banker, he is the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To the builder, he is the sure foundation. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the horticulturalist, he is the true vine. To the judge, he is the righteous judge. To the jeweler, he is the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he is the advocate. To the journalist, he he is the good news. To the musician, he is the horn of our salvation. To the preacher, he is the living word of God. To the rulers and world leaders, he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. To the servant, he's the good master. To the diplomat, he is the desire of all nations. To the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the shepherd, he is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. To the Jew, he is the son of Abraham. And to the Gentile, he is the son of man to the sinner he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to the worried he is the prince of peace to the downtrodden he is the friend of sinners to the thirsty he is the water of life to the Christian he is our Christ who is our life the name above all names the alpha the omega the first the last the beginning and the end the lover of our souls and the redeemer of our lives and he must have the preeminence he must he is first place and he must be recognized in our lives and we must give him what is rightly his which is everything which is everything aren't we thankful for him that is our king that is our savior that is the one who has saved us from our sins and we rejoice and we point others to him Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and we are going to enter into a time of invitation and a time of consecration. And I pray today that our affections for Christ are building even right now ever more than they have understanding who he is. So let's pray together as Brother Frank, the musicians come forward. Father, we come before you now praising you for Jesus. We thank you, God. Thank you for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. And thank you that Jesus is the image of you. To see Jesus, to hear his words, is to see you, to hear you, to understand how you respond in every situation. Oh God, we pray that you would just close this time, Lord, increasing our affections for Christ, increasing our worship of Christ, praying that Jesus would be the aim in all things. Lord, that we're not just pointing people to us, we're pointing people to you. We are not the hope of the world. God, without you, we are lost and have no idea what we're doing. But you are the hope of the world. And we look to you and we keep our eyes upon you. And we thank you for who you forever will be. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, God, just encourage our hearts, we pray, like never before. Father, if anyone in this room does not know you, may today be the day of salvation. 
If anyone in this room has somewhere along the way replaced you on the throne, God, may today be the day that they, whatever's on the throne besides you, may it, it be relinquished, may it be removed, and may you be placed there on the throne of every heart, for you are worthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.